All right. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Getting to Club podcast, where you get to steal the skills, techniques, and playbooks of the top 1% of tech sales practitioners so that you can become a President's Club winner and stay a President's Club winner if you're already there. So today I'm going to teach you three quick-ish tips on how to beat your competitors especially as the quarter starts to end, right? That's when cheaper competitors tend to come in with like 40% discounts and it can get really hard. In fact, I remember years ago, I was working a competitive deal toward the end of the quarter and I was counting on that deal. And I'll never forget what the buyer told me. They said, I've never seen two products look more identical before. So this decision is coming down to price. And of course I was like 30 or 40% more expensive. I lost the deal. I explained how we were different until I was blue in the face. It really didn't matter. It wasn't landing. I hadn't built the context I needed for those differentiators to land. So I have a lot more than just three tips to win competitive deals, to drive your competitors crazy, to rig deals in your favor. We talk about that at length in the full course, Rig the Game. But today I'm going to give you just three of those tips that are going to help you close more competitive deals as the quarter comes to the end. Okay, so the first one is find the weakness within your competitor's strength. Okay, I did not misspeak. That's not a typo. I'm not saying find the weakness in general because your competitors are going to close that gap. They either have rebuttals for those weaknesses because they're aware of them their product team is working on closing those gaps. It's not sustainable. Instead, think judo, right? What is the weakness within their strength? So think about your competitor's strength and what's the weakness within it and how can you use that to reposition the conversation to favor you? So I'm going to give you a couple examples. Burger King in the 1980s did this really well to gain market share against McDonald's. Now I, I get that McDonald's is like the juggernaut and some people are going to be like, well, uh, Burger King's still smaller than McDonald's. That's not the point. Burger King was tiny before implementing what I'm about to teach you, and they gained significant traction against McDonald's. And so they analyzed McDonald's strengths, and they looked around, and they saw Ronald McDonald, and they saw all the play places, and they saw Happy Meals. And so they thought to themselves, and they realized, oh, McDonald's is really good for kids right? Parents are going to take their kids there. Kids love it. They get to play in the play place. They get happy meals. They love it. And so instead of trying to find a weakness of McDonald's, Burger King simply went to market and said something to the effect of McDonald's is great. It's a great place to take your kids. But when you're ready for for a full-blown adult burger, this is where you want to come. (laughs) Okay. That is a very tough position for McDonald's to refute. Because they can't be like, well, no, 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 we, we've got like adult, good adult food too, all while uh, Ronald McDonald is sitting on their shoulder and you can see the play place in the background and Happy Meals are the, the most ordered thing on their menu. Okay, this is really effective and you can do the same thing with your competitors. So think through what their strengths are. Think about what the inherent weakness of that strength is and then reposition the conversation accordingly. I'll give you one more example and then we'll move on to tip number two. Early in the gong days, right? This is like probably 2017, 2018. Um, our chief competitor at the time was Chorus. And they actually had pretty good AI baked into their products. Now, we eventually outpaced them 
um, on that dimension. But at the time, um, AI was kind of their shit. And so they were using that strength, right? They would get into competitive deals and they would say, we our AI is a lot better. And instead of trying to find like a weakness, we simply leaned into that strength and kind of used it against them. Again, this is like sales judo. And we said, yeah, uh, chorus, like let, let's run a pilot first side by side. And at the end, we, we always knew we had a better user interface that reps were really going to love. So we would like run a survey and we'd get really positive feedback from reps compared to chorus. And so we would use that to craft a story and say, chorus does have exceptional AI, no doubt, no arguments. But that's part of the issue is they're basically AI scientists trying to figure out how salespeople work. And we're more so sales and go-to-market leaders that are using AI to help salespeople do their job. And you can see how that's showing up. You can see that your reps are engaging with our product better. And so while there, I, you could make an argument that their AI might be a little bit better, although we would refute that, that's actually the problem with them as a company right now. And we won, don't get me wrong, our competitive deals were more complex than just that talk track. But this helped us significantly reposition a strength that they were using against us and kind of use that weight or use that strength against them. Again, it's judo. So think through what your competitors' strengths are and start to see if there's an in inherent weakness that you can use to to use it against them a little bit and reframe the conversation. So that's one of three. Number two of three is to sell the micro problem that your differentiators solve before selling the differentiator. Okay, so I want you to think about your unique capabilities, your differentiators. Some of them might be significant. Some of them might be very small and incremental, but think about what those are. Maybe you have one, two, or three of them. What most salespeople do with that is they just describe them to the buyer, thinking that that's somehow going to land. They say, you know, the buyer says, how are you different than your competitor? And they go, oh, this, this, and that. And they think they've checked the box of um, boxing out their competitors. But the buyer doesn't value your differentiators unless they solve an aspect of the buyer's problem. So you have got to think about what piece of your buyer's problem your differentiators solve and spend 80% of your time competing, selling that part of the problem, and then 20% of the time describing your differentiator in a way that solves that problem, right? It kind of reminds me of that Abraham Lincoln quote where he's like, if I had six hours to chop down a tree, I'd spend five hours of it sharpening my ax and then an hour chopping down the tree. This is the same thing. If you had six hours to differentiate against a competitor, spend five hours sol selling the problem that your differentiators solve, and then one hour educating your customer on those differentiators. Okay, I'll give you one more example and then we'll move on. And I used a lot of Gong examples because I worked at Gong for a long time. You can translate these into your own reality, but I can't do it for you. Um, this is probably like circa 2018 again. Uh, one of our differentiators at the time was a product feature called Whisper. Okay, and what Whisper did is it automatically analyzed the talk tracks that separate your top producing salespeople from average ones. What messaging themes are they leaning on and shying away from compared to average producers? This was unique to Gong at the time. I don't think it is now, but back then it was. And so instead of just saying that exactly how I did, we would instead sell the problem. 
we would say every sales leader since the dawn of time is familiar with the bell curve problem, right? Where you've got like a few top producers who are hitting 150 or 200% of their number and it's great, but there's only a couple of them. And the bulk of your sales organization is probably missing their number by just a little bit, right? They're average producers. They're hitting 80, 90% of their number. And the reason that's frustrating is that mediocre performance cancels out all the great performance of your best people, right? So as a sales leader, you're basically at break even, or maybe you're even at a loss when it comes to your quota. And so how do we close the delta between top producers and average producers? And then we would introduce Whisper, right? So I just spent 90 seconds selling the problem, framing the problem, positioning the problem. In a perfect world, I would do discovery with the buyer on how that shows up in their world, but this is just a podcast, so I'm not going to do that. <laughs> and then when we introduce Whisper, it's like, holy shit, this is powerful. Okay, and then it lands. So do the same thing with your buyers. Find your unique capabilities. That's step one. Step two is get crystal clear on the problem or aspect of the problem that they solve, and then sell the hell out of that problem with your buyer. Do more discovery around it, educate them on the problem, and then introduce the differentiator because now your buyer is going to value your differentiators. If all you do is neutrally describe how you're different, you've intellectually educated your buyer, but they don't value it. Okay? Differentiators are only valuable if your buyer values it. And you can do things to get buyers to value it. Okay, so that's two of three. Number three is reframe how your buyer thinks about the problem entirely. I call this a nexus. We talk about this in detail in Rig of the Game, the course. And it is essentially how you turn their perception of the problem upside down in a way that favors you and your unique capabilities. So I'm going to give you a couple examples. Um, 20 plus years ago, there was a book that came to market called The Power of Full Engagement. Now, this book is a book on personal productivity, which is a bloodbath of a book market, right? there At the time, there were probably hundreds, if not thousands of books on personal productivity, talking about time management, et cetera. And so how did this book become a New York Times bestseller when the market was already so crowded? Well, they reframed how the market thinks about personal productivity. The entire thesis of the book and the entire marketing message of the book was personal productivity is less about time management, which is what you've been doing, and more about energy management. You manage your time, but you're low on energy and you're not taking that care or care of that part. You're basically a race, race car without fuel in it. But if you get really good at this energy management piece, time management becomes trivial. You don't need a bunch of methods, tips, and tactics because you are a person on fire. <laughs> okay. And they reframed how the market thought about personal productivity. They weren't saying, well, our time management system is a little bit better than um, this other one over there or that other one over there or those other hundred or thousand over there. They reframed it entirely. They said, it's not about time management, or at least it's less about time management, it's about energy management. And you can do the same thing. It takes a lot of intellectual labor to come up with this for your business, but I'll give you one more example that's more software oriented. And you have to keep in mind, this is like circa 2010 or something like that. 
when HubSpot was really first coming to market. The context that they were coming to market in is inbound marketing, that concept didn't exist. Okay, everybody was marketing outbound in an interruptive style, very salesy. Um, that was the status quo of marketing and marketing software, right? Marketing software at the time facilitated outbound marketing. What HubSpot did is they came to market with a nexus. They didn't say our marketing software is better than that one over there or that one over there. Instead, they changed how the market thought about the problem in a way that favors HubSpot. They said, in, or they said, outbound marketing is dead. Inbound marketing is the new wave. This is where the new generation of super successful companies are going to act. Okay. Outbound, interruptive, salesy marketing, dead. Attraction-based marketing, inbound, thought leadership, bringing people to you, content marketing. This is the way forward. Oh, and by the way, we're the only ones who have the software to facilitate that philosophy. Okay, so you can do the same thing. It's not going to be easy, right? This podcast, I'm teaching you uh, what to do, but like how you implement this in your business, very few people are going to do it. And if you're one of the people who does the hard intellectual labor and tests this out and refines it, it can pay extraordinary dividends when it comes to your competitive win rates. So that's all I have for you today. I have dozens of competitive tactics and playbooks, most of which you'll find in the Rig the Game online course, but I shared three of them with you today. Um, I aspire to sharing a little bit more. So if it's quarter end for you and you're still head to head against some competitor, see if you can implement some of these, see if you can implement them going forward. It's even better to do these at the beginning of a sales cycle. So you're solidifying the buying criteria in your favor early on. Give them a try and I will see you in the next episode.